Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? Probably about five years ago, before my wife and I had kids, uh, we were invited, along with a handful of other, a handful of other couples, to go see the Nutcracker Ballet in downtown Indy. Yeah. And truth be told, I was, uh, when I found out about this scheme that I was being invited to go to, I was not optimistic about the prospect. So, uh, so we end up at the show. And uh, by that time, I'm like, all right, I got to be a good sport here. So I'm trying to be a good sport, but I'm still feeling a little suspect about how this whole thing is going gonna, is gonna to go. And so the show gets underway, and I start watching and seeing these performers at work. And what I witnessed that I'd never known before was that professional ballet is actually an incredible combination of strength and flexibility and balance. Despite my reservations, as these performers danced and moved, I was genuinely blown away by their athleticism. If it's not something you've seen before, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's impressive. It's genuinely impressive. And the impact of seeing those performers in action totally changed my perspective on what ballet is. The impression left by what I observed massively uh, increased the respect that I have for those athletes and the value that I place on that form of art. And so my question is, When was the last time that you were impressed by God? Impressed by God himself. When, if ever, have you studied God's word and in watching him work, it just blew your mind. As I sat and studied this text and prepared for this lecture, I I was so impressed by the way that God interacted with Abram. The actions that God initiates, the ways he responds, the promises that he makes should leave, should leave us thinking, oh, oh, God is impressive. He is impressive. And when you've watched, watched God closely and when his power and his love and his majesty have been impressed, impressed upon you, it should change the way that you, that you value and approach and interact with God himself. My aim tonight is that through this text, you'll be deeply impressed, impressed by who God is and what God does, and that your value of him and his promises will increase because of it. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, God, I'm, I'm so um, impressed by you. I, I, my, you know my heart, Lord. My heart's prayer is that would you please impress the hearts of these men the way that you have me by this text. I can't even, Lord, I can't even put into words what I've experienced as I've read Genesis 15. I didn't expect it. And yet, you've, oh, I don't have words. Lord, let that be the case for these men. I pray that the words that come from my mouth will just 
move whatever they've already learned in this text so that they can't leave here the same. That no man here walks out like, yep, I'm the same as when I left. No, God, please, please just speak. Do something that I can't do or work in these men's heart, in my heart, I pray. And in Jesus' name, amen. So the way in which I'm hoping that we can open ourselves to be impressed by, by God is by focusing on two questions as we go along. The first is, who is God showing himself to be? And the second is, what is he doing that I need to see? Who is he and what's he doing? The first division, the first section of this text is verse one. It's just one verse, but it's huge. The principle is that God himself is the antidote to our fears. For this opening verse in chapter 15, it's critical to recall what has occurred at the end of chapter 14. Abram made three bold moves. The first is that he rescued his nephew Lot by staging an ambush on Lot's captors. The second is that he met with Melchizedek, and in an unprecedented honor to God, he gave 10% of the spoils to him as a priest of God, as a high priest of God. And the third is that he told he tells the king of Sodom, essentially his next-door neighbor, that under no circumstance would he ally with him or undertake any transactions which would allow that king to take credit for Abram's wealth. So that's the setup. We move to chapter 15 where we pick up today, and the question is, it was in our lesson, what do you think Abram is feeling right now? Have you ever had an experience like this? You've done something that you know, you know is good, you know is right, and you're proud, you're excited. And then, as soon as it's over, this voice of doubt or fear starts to creep up in your mind. You've just done, you've honored God, and then all of a sudden, there's just something back here that's like making you afraid. For Abram, maybe it sounded like, <laughs> I just told the king of Sodom, who's just shown me that he has fairly poor discretion on who he goes to war with because he lost. He, he made a poor choice in going to war with these people. So he's not afraid to do that type of thing. I just told that guy to go pound dirt. <laughs> and Abram's feeling, oh man, I'm a little nervous right now. And so who does God show himself to be and what do we see him doing? Verse one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and he said, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield and your reward shall be very great. God reaches out to Abram and says, fear not, I'm your shield, I am your shield. Uh, a couple years ago, you guys may remember this if you lived in the area. There was a, a big hailstorm that came through, especially up in the Westfield area. So my wife and daughters and I lived in Westfield. And um, this hailstorm blows in. And it, it was, I've never been in a storm where I've been so scared, truthfully. Uh, the hail was coming down and we go grab our girls and I'm literally, we're in the basement with them. And I'm just praying like, God, don't let the windows break. Don't let the windows break. I was, I was afraid. All of our siding had to be replaced. Our entire roof had to be replaced. A couple months ago, my older daughter, Annie, uh, 
everyone thinks their kid's the smartest kid, but I think she's pretty smart. She's got a great memory. And she's like, hey, daddy, uh, do, do you remember that big storm at the old house? And I'm like, it was a year ago. Like, and I'm like, well, uh, yeah. And I said, yeah, I remember. Were you afraid? And she says, no. And I said, why weren't you afraid? And she said, because my daddy was holding me. <laughs> I rehearsed this in front of my wife today, and my daughter was standing on the chair in front of me as I said these words, and uh, it's really special. And uh, she said she wasn't afraid because I was holding her. Annie believed in her heart that whatever happened, if I was holding her, I would ensure she was safe. That danger was real. Fear in that moment would have been very legitimate. But she wasn't afraid because I was the one managing the danger. Her belief in who I was and what I was capable of caused her not to be afraid. That's a small illustration of what God is talking about and saying here to Abram. And it's all throughout Scripture. In Joshua God is talking to him and he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God has just told Joshua and the Israelites to go into the promised land and they're walking into a place with enemies who are real and formidable. But God pushes on Joshua and reminds him, you do not have to be afraid. This moment in Genesis is the first time in Scripture in which God uses the phrase, I am. I am. He says, I am your shield. A shield is something that is near to you. It's not a distant defense or a far-off protector. It's, a, it's directly before you, protecting you from close-up danger. And that's what Abram was experiencing. He was, he, his fear was in relation to a real-life nearby danger, an enemy who had recently sown foolish and reckless aggression towards powers far greater than Abram and his small band of soldiers. God is telling Abram and he's telling us, do not be afraid do not be afraid of the dangers and troubles in your life. Why? Not because they aren't real. When you read the Psalms, King David spent the majority of his life under the threat of attack. And yet what does he attest to more than any other biblical writer? That truly, when we know, see, and believe in who God is and what he can and will do, our fears have no footing to stand upon. God himself is the antidote to our fears. How committed and capable of defending and helping you do you truly believe that God is? How much do you believe that? So that reality is true. God is our shield. But there's a parallel reality. For me personally, I know, I know these truths. And I try to cling to them, but so often 
I'm still afraid. I'm still afraid. And so what do I do? What do we do with that? The second section of this text is verses two through six. There's two key principles. The first is that God wants us to, he wants us to bring our doubts and our fears to him. In verse one, we've already seen God take the initiative and reach out to Abram in his worry. It's very clear that Abram didn't call out to God. God came to Abram first. He takes the step. So if God didn't care about Abram's fears and his concerns and his doubts, why would he do that? He does that because he does care. He does care. We also see that God welcomes our cares when we bring them to him. In verses two through six, Abram responds to God's encouragements by somewhat accusingly voicing, voicing his suspicions to God. But God, in his goodness, he doesn't chastise Abram for sharing these. He shows his true character by coming alongside Abram and helping him see his faithfulness and his plan. King David, again, is such a strong example of a person who questioned God, poured out his heart to him, and who personally attests that when you're totally real with God about your fears and concerns, he not only welcomes you, but he also rewards and protects you. Here's a few examples of what David said. Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are the shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. And then in Psalm 6, he says, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And then he says, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. In truthfulness, you guys, my, my prideful spirit struggles with this idea, with this concept. The thought of constantly crying out to God and begging for him and drenching my bed with tears. I'm like, oh my gosh, like my American, that American mentality is just like not agreeing with that. It tells me you gotta be independent. You gotta handle this on your own. You gotta be reliant on yourself and to be dependent on someone else is just pathetic. And yet that mentality is a direct contradiction of what God says in his word. He tells us, here's a few examples uh, in James. If any of you lacks wisdom, if you don't understand, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. In Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. And then in 1 Thessalonians, it says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The characters of the Bible 
and of this world who have made the most impact for God's kingdom are those who fervently and in full transparency brought their cares and concerns to God. And look at the outcomes, you guys. Look at the outcome for Abram when he does this. He just responds to God. I don't get this, God. What are, show me how this is going to work. And what does he get? Because of his willingness to push back on God and ask questions, he gets to experience the surreal glory of God's covenant that will bless earth and humanity eternally. Because, God, or because Abram got real with God, he got a front row seat to seeing God's incredible promise of land, offspring, and eternal blessing. God loves it. He loves it when we bring our cares to him. He's asking us, he's asking you to bring your real self, your real cares. He sees it anyway. He sees it anyway. Just say it. Just say it. So what is stopping you from being brutally and entirely honest with God? What's stopping you? The second, the second part of this section, uh, verses two through six, the, 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 the second key principle is that God credits righteousness to individuals based on faith alone in him. Gentlemen, I can't emphasize to you enough how imperative this concept is to your and to my relationship with Jesus and God the Father. In verses five through six, it says, God brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven. Come on, look to heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. And God counted it to him as righteousness. As Protestant Christians, we hold fast to the belief based on this text that there are no actions that we can take nor any amount of good works that we can complete to earn our salvation, to add to our justification, or to make ourselves stand more rightly before God, before holy God. This is an idea that if, if you haven't really sat and thought, what do I believe and what does my life actually indicate that I believe? I'm begging you guys, would you, would you think about this? What do I believe in terms of what makes me actually right with God? I believe this truth. But when I look at my life, I find myself doing and thinking things that suggest that I don't fully get this. So often as I've been preparing for these lectures, I've thought, I need to make sure I'm doing the right things, that I'm living righteously, that I'm keeping my head on straight so that God will give me the words that I need. And at some level, that's there's some truth in that, that I do, I, I do need to be praying and listening and being persistent in the work. Those are responsibilities that I do have. But the underlying problem, I'm telling you guys, this is what's in my heart that I'm seeing. The underlying problem is that what I'm actually thinking is that if I don't do those things, God will look at me as less justified or less righteous before him, and therefore he won't provide the words that I need. 
And so the inverse of that that I'm believing is that I'm, I'm living as though I believe that if I act right, God will see me as more right or more righteous. I believe he's justified me, but in those moments, I'm thinking, I, I gotta get it right so that I'll be, I'll be in right standing with him and I'll get what I need. And that is not true. That is false. It's not true. This text spells it out clearly. It says, Abram believed the Lord and God counted to him as righteousness. The only thing that makes us right before God is him placing his, his righteousness upon us. And the only mechanism by which that, through which that can occur is belief in him. That's it, period. Here's two other examples in scripture that affirm this belief. The first is the apostle Paul. If you're not f- familiar with uh, Paul or Saul, he was a Pharisee. He was a leader in Judaism who had memorized the entirety of God's own law. And from his earliest age, he devoted his entire life to living according to God's law. That guy said this. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in the law, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all those things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is begging us to see that we cannot, you cannot, you cannot do enough. You can't do enough. You just can't do enough. The only way to receive eternal salvation is through belief in God. The second example, and I love this. This just, man, this hit me. It's the thief on the cross next to Jesus. He's hanging, Jesus is hanging there on the cross with two criminals dying on either side of him. And one of the criminals is mocking Jesus. And on the other side, we see, we see this, Luke 23. But the other criminal rebuked the one who mocked Jesus, saying, do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is an incredible picture of righteousness and salvation issued by God, not as a result of works, but in response to belief. This man was a self-proclaimed criminal. He looked at Jesus, sees who he is, and he asked Jesus to remember him, showing that in his heart, He believed that Jesus was truly God, the holder and administrator of justice and righteousness. And Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. 
It is only by means of belief in God himself that we can stand righteously before him. I can't emphasize it enough. Abram did nothing but believed. Paul did everything but proclaimed it all a waste outside of his belief in God. And the thief did nothing but believed. And for all three of them, God makes it clear. By his grace, each of these men were covered in the righteousness that he alone could issue to them. Ephesians 2, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God credits righteousness to individuals based on faith alone in him. In what ways have you been trying to earn your righteousness? Or, like me, in what ways have you, do you find yourself trying to just bolster your standing before God? The final section of this is verses 7 through 21. And the key principle is that God promises physical land to his people. You know, the thread that I was hoping to weave through this message was that of, of being impressed by God, watching him and just thinking, oh, oh God, you are, you're amazing. And studying this section, I was sitting in uh, homemade over there, that sandwich restaurant. I was sitting there waiting to meet with one of our pastors, and I just had a few minutes to, to look at this. And I'm sitting there, and I, I, I'm reading this. I'm like, it just hit me. I'm like, God, you're just awesome. Like, this is so cool. And so I hope that maybe this section will hit you the same way. And what stood out to me as I sat there is how intentionally and frequently God emphasizes the importance of the land. Thus far in Genesis, anytime the land is mentioned, God himself is the one who brings up the topic. Abram is obsessed with having a son, but God seems to be obsessed with the land. And so I hope you're asking, what's up with the land? Between chapters 12 and 17, God mentions the land to Abram eight times. And this continues all throughout the Old Testament. You know, one idea you've probably heard pastors say or talk about is that, uh, is that when something's repeated in the Bible, it means it's important and we should pay attention. And the land is one of those things that it's, all, it's just over and over and over and over again. And totally honest, it wasn't until I was studying this this week that that hit me. It's like, wow, God talks about this a lot. And so we need to be asking, why the land? Why is this so important to God? Why is it so important to him? So last year, uh, my parents planned ahead and they booked a house in Branson, Missouri on Table Rock Lake for this coming July. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Table Rock Lake is a place where as a kid, my family and I used to go there every summer for a week and we'd spend the whole week together uh, boating and floating and cliff jumping and just spending time together. And it's been a long time since we've been there, but every year, it's, it's probably been 10, 15 years since we've been, and, but every year since the last time we went, my dad especially has often talked about getting us all back to Branson together. 
He's like, oh man, come on, we gotta get to Branson. We gotta get the families together. We gotta get the girls. We gotta get the, your wives. We gotta, like, come on, we gotta get every. And truthfully, uh, there's times I'd be like, oh my gosh, dad, like, what's up with Branson, man? Like, just chill out a little bit. I'm like feeling a little, feeling a little pressured here. And why do you keep bringing it up? And so we've talked about it recently. And as we talked, I realized it's two things. Number one is that Branson is a place that early on, my parents decided it would be our our spot where we could just be together as a family. Nothing else, no distractions, just us together. And it's something that they loved and that they're hoping that we can restart again. The second thing is that my dad kept bringing it up because he was hoping that at some point, Taylor and I and our families would catch this vision and get as excited and focused on getting back there together as he is. That's why God keeps bringing up the land, the promised land. God is our father, and he's dying to live together with us again. And he's hoping that we'll catch the vision and get equally as excited and focused on that plan as he is. And how can we be so sure? Because he shows it in his word that it's, it's the plan that he started with, it's the plan that he's building, and it's the plan he's going to end with. Where did he start? He started in the Garden of Eden. God formed the whole earth with its attributes and its living creatures, and he carved out a specific area of land, a garden. It was a physical piece of land on this earth, a garden, and it was a place where he put man and woman to work and live in communion with with him. His original intent was to dwell together with man on this earth, this one, the one we're on right now, in a perfect place of perfect peace and beauty and connection. So what's he doing now? Eden's not here anymore. The promised land for Israel that that God speaks to in Genesis is a vision of this same thing. It's a physical location that's that's envisioned to be a place where God's people will dwell in unity with and in worship of God himself. That's what he talks about. That's the vision that he casts. But this interim promised land, it's a real place. We know it. We could point to it on a map. But the thing that kind of just caught me off, I'm like, it's not the land of milk and honey that he keeps talking about. It's a land that's war-torn and broken. And, and, and so why does he keep talking about it? This place that we can't live with him in. He's here with us, but he's not living with us like he did in Eden. And so why does he keep talking about it? And that brings us to the end where the plan culminates. In, in uh, Genesis 13, 14 through 15, the Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Highlight the last line. The land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. He's, he talks about this in other verses. It's an eternal thing he's talking about. So that should raise a question mark. It's a physical land here. But he's saying forever, God is calling out this land 
on this earth even now because it's the same land on which we as believers in God, offspring of Abraham, will spend eternity. The new heaven and earth are the culmination of his plan where man and God will live together. And he's not ditching the world and starting from scratch. He's not doing that. He keeps pointing to the land of Canaan and Jerusalem and saying, look, it's over there. It's right there. If you're wondering where you're going to live eternally, you can go see it today. But the difference is I'm going to fix it. You'll be fixed. It'll be fixed. We'll be there together. It's right there. Get excited. Go look. We're God's children, and he's eagerly looking forward to the day when he can live together here with us again, like he intended from the start. And he keeps repeating himself because he wants you to be just as excited. He wants you to be excited. Let's go. Come on. That's exciting. It's exciting because God is excited. Your dad is saying, let's go. Let's get everybody back together. Think about it. Focus on it. Talk about it. He's excited. How much do you think about and how excited are you about living together with God here on earth restored? How excited are you? Do you think about it? God keeps talking about it because he wants us to think about it. In conclusion, <laughs> are you impressed with God yet? <laughs> I hope so. Man, I hope so. I can't add to that. I pray that when you leave here tonight, when you walk through your day tomorrow, when something comes up that you're not sure about, you'll think back to Genesis 15. And you'll remember, God is my shield. I don't, I don't have to be afraid. I really, truly do not. God is loving. He's dying for me to cry out to him. He wants me to be real with him. He can handle it. He's asking for it. God is gracious and just. My belief in him is all he requires for me to be made righteous with him and to stand justified before him. That is it. Oh, man. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that freeing? Oh, man. And last, I hope that when you go through your day tomorrow, you'll remember God is set apart. You'll remember this. He set apart a physical land for me for you, for his people, so we can live together with him forever. And, you should, and I can be just as pumped up about it as he is. Man, whew. That's awesome, y'all. Come on. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, all right, let's pray. Father in heaven, you're just, man, you're good. You're great, you're big, you are at work, You've, <laughs> you require so little of us, you want so much for us, you love us, you want to talk to us, you care for us, you're protecting us. I mean, what else could we need, Lord? What else could we need? I seriously, truly pray, God, 
let each guy hear this message today, Lord. I felt it from, from when it started. is so beyond me. It's so much bigger than me. And so I'm asking that the men here would come back, me included, and we would listen to this message. And we would be reminded of who you are and what you do and that it should just change us. We should look different. And I pray that each guy would go home today. They'd wake up tomorrow, myself included. God, help us to be not the same guys we were when we walked in the door. You can do that. And you're doing that. Help us live like that because of you, God, because you did it. You did it. God, we love you. We, we just can't even say enough. We can't. Help us to carry that through our day tomorrow and just be in awe of you. We are impressed by you, God, man. Amen.